that there are only men um, who are speaking at this conference. You know, rather than kind of taking that stance as much, come on, Ozi-sans, get a grip. Hello. Konnichiwa. Welcome to Made with Japan. I'm your host, Ken Shibusawa. On this podcast, we will invite a wide range of interesting guests to learn why, where, what, and how Japan can co-create well-being and prosperity with the world. Um, I'd like to welcome Christina Meijang to my second podcast ever. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining me, Chris. My pleasure. Yeah, so um, you are a very uh, interesting person in a sense that you are a professor in Japan, an American of Armenian and also Swedish descent, which I would imagine you're, you're, you're the only one in this planet that fits that category. Yes, I, I'm guessing that's probably true. <laughs> so so um, wondering how you became a professor in Japan starting up, you know, from your younger days in your youth. Did you always have an interest in Japan? I never had an interest in Japan. Um, I was always I was always interested in foreign languages and foreign cultures since my mm -hmm. both my parents families were immigrant families and they mm -hmm. they, they didn't speak English at home and they celebrated unfamiliar holidays and um so there was a very foreign sense of um and and i felt very different from many of my classmates and, and very um international but of course i never learned swedish or armenian and ended up get, getting really into french when i was in high school really? and and thought at college i would major in french or some kind of languagey thing and people said no no french is a really bad idea because it's a route to um unemployment and so then I thought, okay, what's a, what's a language that I can study that will um, get me a job? And and in those days, it was when China had just begun to open up. And so um, this was the 1980s, early 80s, late 70s. <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, this was 19. So when I chose my major, it was, oh my goodness, it was 1978. Mm. And so China was new and hot, and there were all these possibilities. And of course, I had no idea what I do in China, but. Um, but I um, thought, okay, China. So China seemed really cool. And I thought, okay, I'll learn Chinese. And, and I also, I was at Harvard and Harvard had a book of all the different majors and, um, and East Asian studies was the major where you could study Chinese. It was small, it was social sciences oriented. And I did a department visit. So I went and I visited the department to, um, in this, it's moved now, but in the small, this house, it was very homey. And I met the um, the chairman or the program director or whatever, who was Ezra Vogel, a professor named Ezra Vogel, who was a, a professor actually of Chinese um, society. That's right. Okay. And um, Ezra, Professor Vogel was super friendly. I was, wow, there's this famous Harvard professor greeting us in a friendly way. And so I, I signed on for East Asian studies and Chinese. And I had no I knew nothing about China. I knew less about Japan. I had no interest in Japan. And, and people basically said, oh, the Japanese teachers is um, is very strict and scary. Um, turned out the Chinese teacher was also strict and scary. <laughs> but and then and then they said, you know, Japan, bad place for women. You'll never be able to have a career in Japan. You might as well study Chinese. And and so, um, yeah, so I signed up to study Chinese at at, at Harvard in East Asian studies and never looked back. But that was Chinese, not Japanese. Well, obviously you took a different turn somewhere along the way. <laughs> How did I get to Japan? So then I, I studied abroad. I, my my um, study abroad was in Taiwan. Um, and again, liked everything Chinese. Although it was be beginning a little bit, um, becoming a little bit, well, China's opened up, but still there are no jobs there. And um, Ezra Vogel, my professor who had been writing and teaching on China, um, published a book called Japan is Number One in 19, right, sure. around that time. And basically, he started to say to everybody, yeah. Japan is number one. <laughs> you should go to Japan and see the Japanese miracle. And um, the, the U.S. job market in, in that year, in 1981, was horrible. I had no idea how I was ever going to get a job anywhere. And so I thought, I'll go to Japan. I'll teach English. I'll see the Japanese miracle. And then... Once I have enough money um, to 
take the next step, I'll maybe go to to China. And I had these weird delusions about going to law school because I think that you know, sort of, you know, if you don't know what you want to do, you, um, you go really, to law school. Well, I went to business. I went to business school, so I didn't well, that know was that. my next step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then, um, after I graduated from college with my degree in East Asian Studies, Chinese, I hopped on a plane and and moved to Japan, and so there I was in Japan. Right. So um, Mitsubishi company, right? Well, I was an English teacher oh, in, um, English, yeah, in right. Osaka at this um, Osaka. Wow. Yeah. And this um, English conversation school and taught English. But I happened to uh, be living next door to the company dormitory for Mitsubishi Electric um, Kyoto Works. And um, so I met people there and, and they introduced me to a job opening for a secretary so-called secretary for one of the kachos, the um, department heads or the section heads. And um, department so I, heads are bucho. That's right. The bucho, yes. <laughs> very, very important. <laughs> so I, I was working for a kacho in a okay. ka, in a section. And um, so I got the job and it turned out that it, it it was not necessarily, well, so I was an office lady. That was kind of my job title. And they handed me a uniform and um, put me said said do you do you mind serving tea um, because you're expected <laughs> to do it you know whatever and so yeah so so then I I ended up as an office lady um, not a, a not a permanent employee but a, a contract employee office lady lady at Mitsubishi Electric in um, in Kyoto. Mm -hmm. And what was it like? What was it like working for a Japanese company in nineteen early nineteen eighties? I got really good at serving tea and. Um, <laughs> I got really good at serving coffee, especially coffee. My coffee skills are better than my tea skills. Right. Because, um, well, coffee is complicated. And then the direction of the spoon and the placement of the, the sugar and the milk <laughs> and is, is very important. There were always these senior office ladies looking over my shoulder and um, and then yelling at me. So it was, and oh, oh, you have no, I, I'm sure you have no idea about the skills involved. There's trace, there's how you walk in the door where you put down the tray, you, you know, you can't show your, your, your backside when you, you leave. So you have to kind of edge out. And of course, if we do it to Japanese, Japanese um, are kind of amused that some, you know, foreign woman is, uh, is doing it, but doing it for foreigners, they would be like, Oh my God, what's going on here? And the best part was I was serving, you know, obento, I was serving lunch to yep. these um, American guys. And my boss says to the American guy says, Oh yeah, this is, this is, this is Christina. We just hired her. She just graduated from Harvard. <laughs> These guys just started cracking up. <laughs> so yeah, so that's my my first well, my first job was English conversation teacher. My second one was basically tea serving, lunchbox serving. But I also did um I, I did translations of owners' mm -hmm. manuals. I did factory tours. I hung around in the the factory. So they were making a, they were make they made TV tubes. They um, made um, video tape recorders and a bunch of things. It was a blast. I, I loved it. Yeah. I mean, it, I, there was no, it was clearly no future for me, but I, I loved, I loved it. I loved being in the factory. Wow. So also uh, well, obviously your calling what wasn't being an office lady in Japan. Um, so, so you went back to the U.S. again? So, yeah. So my calling was clearly not to be an office lady <laughs> in Japan, but I had no call. I mean, but it was not like I had a colleagues, a calling. So it was kind of back to square one. Uh, and, and so I, I, I thought, okay, law school is not going to work. And, but I still had no idea what I wanted to do. So of course I applied to business school and, um, yeah, applied to U.S. business schools, struggled. So um, I at least one school rejected me because they said, you you don't have real work experience. They said, what your job, what was your job title? I said, well, um, office lady. And they said, what was your job description? I said, tea. Well, tea. <laughs> I know all this stuff. And they said, that's not real business. And you, you know, we don't want you in our MBA program, but Stanford was a very, was very quirky um, then and, and took quirky people. So I got in under the, um, I guess, under the quota for quirky people. And of course then Japan was a big deal. And so they really, you know, wanted anybody who had any insights into the secrets of, of, the Japanese miracle. So I ended uh -huh. up, I, so I ended up at Stanford and um, yeah. uh -huh. with no idea what I still, I was, okay, I'm getting a v, an MBA. Maybe then I'll figure out what I want to do. So you couldn't figure it out and you joined a consulting firm, right? Yeah. 
so then the next stage, this is so embarrassing, but again, I'm so, I'm so typical because I tell, you know, I tell my students, you have to think about your personal mission. I mean, I tell them my life story. I think I do. Um, they think about your personal mission, blah, blah, blah. But, um, but yeah, so then I, I thought, okay, I can't get it. I don't know what I want to do. So I'll interview for jobs with consulting and investment banking. And um, so I got offers in both consulting and investment banking. And of course, in those days, this was the the bubble economy in Japan and Japan was mm-hmm. taking off and they'd hire anybody who had, um, who wanted to live in Japan. So basically this was, this was 1987, right? This was 87. Yeah. Right. So yeah. this was same, same year as you, right? Yeah. Right. And so people were throwing me job offers and, you know, inviting me to all these. Yeah, they, even invi- they, they even gave me a job actually. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But I'm sure I was less qualified than you. Um, mm. I mean, I had zero qualifications for um, for any kind of employment. Yeah, well, I, I served a little bit of tea myself, actually, in my younger <laughs> days. <laughs> Not the proper way, obviously. But. <laughs> so, so then um, Bain Company was the only company that said, the consult company said that we'll hire you for our San Francisco office. And so um, I said, wow, a real a real job in the United States. And I probably won't have to serve tea. And so I took the job at, at Bain. And then realized that <laughs> I was a terrible consultant. And um, why was well, I a terrible what makes consultant? a good consultant, you think? <laughs> I can't say this. I, I have a theory of what makes a, a good consultant. Um, well, you're an academic. You have a lot of theories, I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm afraid I'll get in trouble for... Um, so a good consultant... Okay. okay, a good consultant is somebody who looks and sounds intelligent. You look sound. You sound and look intelligent. So, <laughs> not, not in the consulting way. So, so the people who are good at consulting were the. <laughs> this is terrible to say, but I'm I'm sorry, guys. But um, they were the prematurely um, balding guys <laughs> 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 who kind of looked older. There right. was a skill of look. I mean, Bain's a great company, and and yep. and of course everyone's great. But but clearly, um, you know, the people who sort of looked like they were adults who looked like they'd learned something at business school did better. And I was clueless. I mean, I looked younger than, than the, what, my, what, 25 or 26, because I was 27 then. I looked younger. Um, I had no business polish because I had never worked for an American company. And all I did was serve tea at a factory. And um, and I had no idea what I was doing. And and um, so, yeah, I was just, I, I feel really bad because I was not a very good consultant. And, and But Bain gave me wonderful, and they gave me incredible experience looking at different kind of companies. They were great people. And um, and I, I, I truly liked it, but I thought, ooh, this is not for me. But I also realized how much I loved researching and, and mm-hmm. I, I, lo- I loved studying business. I mean, I, I actually found business incredibly interesting. And I'd always had this, my father was a, a, a professor and always in the oh, back okay. of my mind, it had this thought that it'd be great to be a professor. And I wanted to be you know, a scientist or an archeologist. And, um, but I don't know, I, 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 I or like a, a, bio, a botanist like my father, but it never really seemed that possible. But when I was in the consulting firm and looking at companies and I was meeting um, lots of business school people and a friend of mine became a professor at Harvard Business School. And I thought, wow, business school professor. That sounds like something I could do. I have no idea why I thought that, but, um, but I did. And so I um, ended up applying for um, PhD programs in business. And mm-hmm. I went to Berkeley, studied Japanese corporate groups, mm. like the Mitsubishi group and the Mitsui group. And was just was hooked and um, thought, wow, you know, at age 28, sort of out of the blue. Oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life. So that's my my, my life's the long version. <laughs> wow. So so you went to Columbia, I believe, right? Then I got a job at Columbia, Columbia yeah. right? And so they have a pretty robust and Japanese program for a long time, right? No, so then I show up in Colombia. So I, I was in the worst part. So I, I was very <laughs> lucky um, yeah. from from graduation of, from college through business school and through my PhD program to be riding the wave of Japan as number one. And so anything Japan-like was fine. And, and if you wrote an, a paper and it was Japan, blah, 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 or secrets of Japanese success, you can get published. But um, when I started at Columbia Business School, I, I'm sure I partially got the job at Columbia because of my Japan research. I got the job and 
basically it was right at it was after the the burst of the bubble but it was kind of when everyone realized the bubble had burst <laughs> so this was in what 1995-1996 and japan was suddenly out of fashion and i i i realized this when i was riding the elevator at, at columbia business school with some um professor of economics and he said oh he says well now that japan is irrelevant what are you going to do research on <laughs> <laughs> so you, you packed your bags and came to japan that was a... <laughs> <laughs> it was horrible so and then i remember in one of my reviews um uh, my my um from a senior professor my degree, he's like he's like oh you have these papers but why do you have japan in the title of all the papers can't you can't... <laughs> like well I, I do research on japan he goes well can't you kind of change what you do research on yeah so i was like oh no what am i gonna do and but at the same time, I had been studying Japanese corporate groups and um, cross shareholding and interlocking boards of directors. And right at that time, Columbia Law School was very much into corporate governance. And they had been giving a series of um, conferences and workshops on corporate governance. One of my very close colleagues um, in the business school was also very much into corporate governance. And they all, he said to me, wait, your research on business groups is, it's not Japanese business, it's corporate governance. I said, oh, what's corporate governance? Yeah. Oh, come to the conference. And so I was very, very lucky to be invited to a um, Columbia Law School conference on corporate governance, wrote about Japan, and thought, wow, suddenly I'm relevant again. And um, then I got a fellow, an Abe fellowship to study corporate governance, once I'd learned what corporate governance was, to study corporate governance in Japan and trotted off to um, Japan, allegedly for one, only one year in I 2000. See. Yeah, I see. I see. And, and it's 2021. And, and you're still here. No, so yeah, black <laughs> hole, right? And so, <laughs> still here. It's kind yeah. of scary. Yeah, um, but it's... You know, they, everything was just, it was great. And um, we were in Tokyo. Uh, my daughter went to, um, a, we put her in a, a Japanese elementary school as a second grader. And she loved Japanese elementary school. It was a lot cheaper than sending her to mm. private school in, in New York. Sure. And, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was very sad mm. not to go back. Although, <laughs> I don't think there was much of a career waiting for me in the States, to be honest as a, a Japanese management expert. Um, and, and so I stayed in, in, in Japan. I, and actually, I was a visiting scholar um, at, at University of Tokyo. I see. But I was reading Business Week, I think, or some magazine. <laughs> there was this picture of this guy in um, suspenders with this kind of funky hairdo. And it was like, Professor Hirotaka Takeuchi is starting an English language business school at Hitotsubashi um, in Tokyo. And I thought, wait, a, wow, maybe maybe this is for me. Oh, wow. Okay. And so then I happened to meet um, Takeuchi yeah. today. And he said, uh -huh. oh, yeah, come on down. I joined the English language business school at, um, at Hitotsubashi and, yeah, in, in 20, 2001. And, yeah, I mean, for somebody who had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, <laughs> so long, suddenly everything kind of started to make sense. And, wow. Well, that's important. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, it, oh, yeah, it's an interesting concept that everything seems to kind of fall in place at some point in your in your career. So and, you know, and, and Steve Jobs, like um, when you look back and what, what does he say? Wait, what Connect, is it? Connecting the dots. Connecting the dots. <laughs> then you can tell like a completely logical story because every, you know, every dot in my life kind of built up to this. So it's all utterly logical. Um, connecting the dots. But, you know, if you go back, think of who I was looking forward. It was kind of like, oh, my, you know, what am I going to do with my life? But but it all kind of makes sense. And so I feel mm -hmm. I feel pleased um, that I'm a person whose dots are connected. <laughs> well, I remember connecting with you uh, initially, not not in person, but I saw your picture <clears throat> um, on, in, in a corporation that um, I was our company was invested in. Uh, uh, in 2008, I launched a company called Commons Asset Management, and this is a long-term investment fund for Japanese retail, a mutual fund, and we strive to invest for the next generation long-term. And, and since 2009, when we started investment, we invest in a company called Azai, which is a pharmaceutical company, not the largest pharmaceutical company here in Japan, but very, very, um, has a character to it. 
and I remember looking through their um, material on corporate governance. I think it was their shareholding shareholder invitation. What's what's the right word for it? Shareholder. Uh, it's it's the memorandum to, for the shareholder meeting. I don't know what it is in English. What is it in English? <laughs> well, obviously. Uh, and you are yeah. But I remember the uh, seeing your face uh, on the material for for independent board directors, um, and there there you were, and and I thought you were some expert in in pharmaceutical in in in, in Europe or something like that. Um, but I guess our initial oh no this let's, let's jump back Azai, I think as an independent is it you're the only woman but the company is very very interesting in in terms of corporate governance because I think they've always had a uh, uh, a vision for that by having more independent board directors than internal and that's one of the reasons why we invested in the company what what was it like working as a board director uh, if you can you know to the extent you can disclose it obviously but at, at Azai what was that company like well so I think Azai basically um they they adopted the um, the U.S. style board with committees, which was a board with three committees, with the audit committee, the nominations committee, the compensation committee, um, that were dominated and chaired by outside independent directors. And they also had an outside um, independent chairman of the board, which is is was and still is very unusual. And they were one of the first companies to adopt it. And I'm not quite sure exactly why. I mean, there were there were some scandals. Um, they were involved in the scandal and, and various things. But I think the biggest thing was that the CEO is a family founded company, and um, the current CEO, and the, who was the CEO then, Mr. Naito, was the third generation of the Naito, the founding family, and the family was was very influential, but didn't own all that much Azai stock. They were not controlling shareholders, but they really were sort of de facto controlling people. And I think that Naito, Mr. Naito really felt that um, that having good independent corporate governance was the appropriate balance for his power and the family power, that to, to have a, a good um, strategically focused um, shareholder um, focused or shareholder um, concerned company, it was really important to have the balance of the two. And so um, it was really, I think, Mr. Naito and mm -hmm. his strategic wisdom to bring in um, this this form of corporate governance that so many companies um, then and, and still now resisted. So, mm -hmm. so um, yeah, so very forward looking on corporate governance. And the story about um, a woman was apparently... Um, their annual shareholders meeting. So, um, so Azai's motto is human healthcare, and it's mm -hmm. wonderful. It's HHC. It's a logo marked. It's written in the handwriting of Florence Nightingale. Do you know that? I didn't know that. Actually, wait, I did know that. I did know that. That's right. But so that's why it's kind of handwriting-ish. But it's Florence right, Nightingale's right. handwriting, which is very cool. And so at um the annual shareholders meeting, which um they they do every year in in Budokan, I think, in a huge this huge um. It's a rock concert place. <laughs> yeah, it's like a rock concert place because <laughs> they have tons of um individual investors, and so everybody's there. And one of the investors um stands, one of the shareholders stands up and says, "Your motto is human healthcare." Why are all the people up there men and aren't half of humans women? So Professor Ikujiro Nonaka, who is a Totsubashi professor, who's the chair of the, of the nominations committee, basically says, OK, we'll find a woman. And you are the woman. I, I promise you that next year we'll have a woman. So, and you're, so you're, you're the, you were the one. Well, so my office was close to his. and um, <laughs> So you walked down the... You, came knocking on your door. <laughs> He's like, woman, I need a woman. Um, and, and so it, it, it was probably a little more complicated than, than that. Yeah, um, yeah. is very, like, I shouldn't joke, because Azai of all the Japanese companies I know, is probably the most systematic in um, finding and screening their independent directors. I see. <laughs> But but the, the the kernel was they they really felt pressure from shareholders and this was in yeah, 2007 2008. That's interesting. Woman. And so and and um you know and and Professor Nonaka knew me and knew that I did research on corporate governance. So it wasn't I mean I wasn't exactly it was clueless about the pharmaceutical industry, but I knew a lot about governance and um and I knew a lot about the Japanese company, and so I actually had some um 
some expertise. Well, so what was the difference? Like, so when you initially entered a large Japanese company, you were wearing a uniform and serving tea. And now the next time you're at a, you know, you're a board director. Right. <laughs> what was that like? It was still, it was terrifying. And so um, people were so polite to me. And uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, this is weird. No, but, but, um, but, but joining the A's, I remember my first day, my first A'sai board meeting, which was, it was, I was, I was terrified the whole time, to be honest, I was at A'sai. And um, although no one there would think that I was terrified, but I was, but, um, but I remember um, walking. So I, 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 I get ready, whereas there's a little, a, a, a office for the outside directors and so they lead me to the board meeting room they open the door and I, I I'd never been in the room before is this what's what I remember is this giant room filled with black heads of um all Japanese guys <laughs> like oh what am I doing here and how will I possibly survive and you know, people were super polite and they're all bowing like Oh, what do I do? People are bowing. What do I do? They they guide me to my my seat, and um, the chairman you know stands up, and Naito stands up, and um, I was so and and you know this illustrious board of outside directors. I was I was terrified. I was like, how am I possibly going to survive this? It was really it was very disconcerting for me. But mm-hmm. I mean, people were so, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely not the the world. Well, even as an office lady, people were friendly to me. But um, mm-hmm. at AZI, of course, people were friendly. They were, um, you know, supportive. They trained me. So it was, it was fine. But boy, you know, being being a foreign woman in this sea and, and being, you know, now now I have at least I have age in my favor. But in those days, you know, I was the youngest person there. And um, it was not used to speaking Japanese. I mean, I signed on. Um, I could read Japanese with no problem. Was was not used to really sort of speaking my mind in Japanese. It was it was quite um, an interesting experience. Yeah, yeah. Well, interesting. But currently, you serve on other uh, large, illustrious Japanese companies, and so I guess you had good training. Yeah, I had great training at at, at Azai, and it was um. It was a really good place to start because I really, you know, they really taught me the basics of of governance and what it takes to um, be a good board. And um, Mm. we spent a lot of time as the board talking about that. And my fellow board members were all very prominent in governance. So I'm I'm, I'm very, I'm, yeah, I'm grateful that I I had that experience. Mm. So Mm. in the second place, um, I tell a story a lot, it was Mitsubishi Heavy Industries. And um, your current position. Well, that was my second board, and I'm oh, still okay. I'm still on their board. I've been on their board forever. But and um, Mitsubishi Heavy for audiences outside Japan, they're a, a, a large in, industrial company in Japan with a long history. So Mitsubishi Heavy, if you want to um, talk, so Azai, basically, you know, forward-looking, very global, um, small, quite nimble pharmaceutical company, very, very a Japanese family company, but also very, very global. And, um, and Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is kind of, yeah, very old, very traditional, kind of known as one of the most traditional companies in, in Japan. So and, did, they, did they bow lower when you were, when we walked into the board director? We were all kind of like, oh, um, I don't know how they, um, yeah, they, they got it into their heads um, that they, 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 they were actually um, doing some very big reforms in their, in their organizational structure. And um, their, their CEO at the time, Mr. Omiya, had been making some very big changes. And I think Omiya-san was the one who decided um that he that they needed to shake up the board a bit. And this board, I mean, talk about you know, 20, I think it was like 24, it sounded like it felt like millions, 24, 25 senior Japanese guys of all graduates of Tokyo University, um, engineer, they're all engineers. <laughs> And I don't. So they call me. They call me through a recruiter, and they're, they're a head, this um uh, this um someone a headhunter for boards. And they said Mitsubishi Heavy Industries is interested in um putting you on their board. And I said no so many times because I was like I was like I never want to work for a company called Mitsubishi. I I'm traumatized by my tea serving days, <laughs> and um I there's like there's no way I'm going to do this. And um and and of course you know their defense, their 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 power. They're, they're, you know, ships kind of big. It's not a feminine 
business, um, and I'm not an engineer. But finally, um, they enticed me to give a lecture to their board of directors, and I, I was as obnoxious as I could possibly be. Um, about Japanese, how bad Japanese governance is. And they said, oh, great, we love you. Um, and then I, you know, I, I chatted with Omiya-san, who had a list, he goes, I want you to do this, 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 this. And I was, and Skuda, and Skuda-san, who was the chairman then. And I was really impressed by their sincerity in, in mm. wanting to change the, the governance. But I remember um, going to my, and so I signed on. I remember going to the first board meeting, similar, you know, they opened the door, you walk, I was ready, I, I had the drill down. You walk into the room, all black heads, um, the MHI guys were even older and even more kind of, um, what is she doing here? And I, so I, I stood up and introduced myself. I said, I'm really scared. And then like, I don't know if it was Omiya-san or Skuda, by Skuda-san. And one of them said, well, we're really scared too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was touch and go for, for a while because I was determined, um, determined to do my job. I mean, I, I right. you know, um, because I'd been at Azai and I, I knew what an outside director was supposed to do. And I was I, I was like, I'm not going to sort of act differently at MHI and I'm I'm going to do what I think a good director should should do. And so I, you know, I asked. What, what's, asked a, what, what's a good director? So a good director, director is to ask questions, is to make statements, is to, you know, to say to 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 look for look for things. It's, you know, like, um, why is this happening? Um, what information was this decision based on? Or are you basing this decision on? Um, why why do we have to talk about such inconsequential things at board meetings when there are more important um, issues to to talk about? So I mean, again, I can't be very specific. Mm, but sure, sure, sure. What, yeah. why, how, what's going on? Right, right. I disagree, right. and and being very straight about things, and um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think, and I don't they they did not expect that they that that's not what they had signed on for, but but we got used to it, and um, and we got used to each other, and um, it's been nine years, so I'm, I'm leaving oh, okay. the board um, because <laughs> it's just been way too long, um, in in June, but but you know, seeing how governance has involved evolved there, it's it's pretty remarkable, um at the changes, you know, boy, it's, it's been, it's been a hard journey for, for MHI for um, mm -hmm. reasons beyond their control and in, in, well, and some within their control, but, you know, just going on that, oh, I hate to journey, such an awful word, sorry. Um, but, you know, just sort of working with the company and, and watching and having a hand in the evolution of their, their governance and their management and strategy has been pretty, pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. And they're still old fashioned. They're still like, Oh, at times, at times, it's just like, how can they possibly still think this way? Um, but but it's it's a very, very traditional company. And, and you get appreciation on, you know, how hard it is to change a large traditional Japanese company, but also on the strengths of, of that tradition as well. Sure, sure. All that. Um, it might be a generalization, but I in looking at corporate governance for Japanese companies, seems like corporate governance of um, what we call owner type, the family type listed public companies compared to that we call sarariman type, which is, you know, worker or what's the right word for in English, the uh, coming up the ranks um, type of company. Um, and it seems like to me, the owner type, family type seems to value corporate governance or they, they get it more compared yeah. to the other type. Is that a generalization or do you see this with the same um, trend? I think that's probably true. And and I, I actually would like to write, I've been thinking a lot lately about writing something about that and, and how corporate governance, and, and at least in Japan, and the, the need for corporate governance and the kinds of things that boards need to do is very different between the, the yeah, the owner firms and these big um from from long long ago kind of traditional sarariman type firms yeah because in the owner firms and um you know like in azai i think it's it's the combination of a an enlightened um ceo with the family credibility and the, the family ownership combined with a very good active board is, is a great combination. And I think it's very clear to see the role of both of those. But yeah, and the, the Sarariman bureaucratic company, it's much more difficult. And, you know, it, and I really feel for the CEOs of companies like that, because, you know, they're bringing, and, and I know great CEOs of companies like that, but they're bringing along this burden of history, of 
loads and loads of people, you know, because, you know, it's not like they, they really, it's hard for them to get their credibility and they can't say, oh, my great grandfather founded this company and I own a lot of stock. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you, you, you see how they, they struggle to, to manage down and to manage up with the the people who were there before them. So yeah, it's a very different kind of, Mm -hmm. kind of role and the challenge. Mm -hmm. I see. Um, Okay. Um, The first time though, actually, when we actually met was you, you became the director of what we call the Shibusawa Scholar Program at Hitotsubashi University, where where the you are a uh, professor. Um, it, it's not my scholar, but but my great great grandfather, H. Shibusawa, um, what was one of the? Uh, he wasn't the founder, but he had a part in, in rebooting the uh, university in its early days. And so, can you talk about a little bit about the Shibusawa Scholar Program? So we um it we received money we um, from the uh, Ministry of Education. So the, the Japanese Ministry of Education these days basically um, tries to to fund universities who um, who start projects um, related to themes that are important. So so they had had a call for funding for um com- for universities to start projects on. Um, human global human resource development or something like that. So basically, globalize their their curriculum. And um, our university, the the, the um, commerce department and the economics department um, applied to to get this funding to the globe. It was called like the global leadership program. But I don't like. I mean, global leadership, especially in Japan, is is such a cliche, and it's it's just you know nobody really knows what it is, and and. Um, and I thought, and and it just sounds kind of foreign. And and so I thought it would be, and I and and the other faculty members who were designing this program thought it'd be much better to um to to call it something else. And and I'm a big um, Shibusawa, a fan of Shibusawa Eiichi, who um <clears throat> was um yeah was kind of the founder of Japanese capitalism and the first social entrepreneur. He um he founded about what 500 companies plus. A lot of um, of of nonprofit companies, uh, nonprofit organizations. He really um, saw business as the support of society, and that that we find we found we found companies in order not to make a ton of money, but I mean making money is good, but to support society. He was also super global, and he um, he he basically he learned about business and learned about. Um, developing an, um, an advanced economy when he went to France in what, when he was 26 or something. So we're talking about this in 1867. So over 150 years ago. It's just remarkable. And he sort of went to France um, with his samurai top knot hairdo and as a, um, not, he was a rich farmer's son, but, um, but he was a kind of a retainer of the, um, the, the Tokugawa, the, 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 the Shogun family, but went to France, had his eyes completely opened um, by observing industry and society and government in Europe, went back to Japan and <laughs> kind of said, OK, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to develop Japan's economy. And, and he really he, he's a remarkable, remarkable character. So we thought having somebody like that as our role model is saying, you know, for our students, we want you guys to be Shibusawa Eichis for the 21st century. We want you to think about business, society, being global, but also um, think about all of what you do as a way to develop your your country and your society. And so so that's what we called it on um, the Shibusawa yeah. Scholar Program. And oh, he was also kind of the godfather of our university because um, the Japanese at that time, the, um, the, the shogunate really looked down on business and, and Japan was a class system. And it was the samurai, the, um, the, the farmers, the craftspeople, and the the um, the biz the traders were at the very bottom and 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 one of them and and so having a business school or a school to um to cultivate commerce was seen as a very kind of low class thing and and she was at was somebody who really was an advocate for um for increasing the status of of business and and business people so our university is indebted you know we we would have been merged with um University of Tokyo without that mm-hmm. so um and he's left some cool calligraphy and. Like oh, really? mm-hmm. he's an amazing person and and um so he's our so yeah so that's a long story but um but he's um the the godfather and the role model in our program and we accept about 15 um students in the um commerce program 
every year to take a third of their classes in English. So in their, in their first year? when they In their second year. So we take yeah, them in their second, second year. year, second, third, fourth year. I see. Um, some stay a fifth year and they study abroad. We give them opportunities to interact with um, with with leaders and um, they're they're great. It's just it's really fun. And they're great. What, what's the before and after effect of them joining the Shibusawa Scholar Program, going through the program and they, they get to study overseas. Right. And so when they come back, do you see a change in their attitude and their perceptions of the world and. So yeah, when they come back, it, it's really fun to watch their progress because they come in, they don't know what they want to do. <laughs> Even um, we one that, that we, sounds familiar, Chris. It is. It's, it's, that's why I like it. That's why I like it because I, I sympathize. But um, you know, I teach I te I teach a seminar um in their first year, and and part of the seminar we talk about the SDGs, we talk about social entrepreneurship. And I'll ask them, you know, what what of the SDGs do you think is most important for Japan or are you most interested in? And they're kind of, well, I don't know. Um, and I'm like, what do you think about, you know, climate issue? They're like, what? And it's it's amazing how um, they've, they've gotten better over the years, but how sort of disconnected they are with society. Mm. And of course, um, their English is a little hesitant, but you know, when they come back from their exchange programs, they're amazing. And um, our, um, our motto is actually not globally leadership. The motto of our program is out of your comfort zone, <laughs> which, <laughs> which, which is great. So it's not just people, it's like jump out of your comfort zone. Right. And they really take that to heart. And it's really fun when they, um, they come back, you know, so these under undergrads are like, oh yeah, I took a bunch of graduate courses and worked on group projects with European graduate students. <laughs> Wow. Um, or, you know, some students do internships, some students just kind of travel. Um, but I think it's really fun to watch these high school, you know, fresh out of high school students jumping out of their their comfort zone. Mm, I see. And then the sad thing is watching them being forced back into their comfort zone, because unfortunately, Japanese huh. company recruiting has not changed that much. And um you know, Japanese companies very much still, though they say they don't, um, value uniformity, black suits, and yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah. suits to kind of do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, well, as a board director, you need to change that, right? <laughs> I'm always, you know, yeah, yeah. It's like my constant rant, and, yeah. and it, 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 you know, everything changes, but very, very slowly. But I'd love to see. I'd love to see my students. It, it, so our first, we we welcome the eighth class of students this year. Wow. And, um, so a few of them are already out in the world. And um, I guess I'd love to see my students shaking up the world more. And it, yeah. they're still a little young for that, but um, well, but, but maybe but maybe not. Yeah. I, so has any of them started their own company, or do they tend to go to large corporations and? They tend like to that. go to large corporations. I mean, some of them are in smaller companies, um, in in startups. Oh, okay. And um, but not that many yet. So, the career track is. I mean, it's a, it's very Hitotsubashi, and and unfortunately, Hitotsubashi to a large extent is a, a feeder school for the the big the big companies. Mm -hmm. And you know, in many ways, I actually think that's fine. I I think mm -hmm. that um that that in fact mm -hmm. going to a big company. And um, and getting experience there yep. is is not not a bad career decision sure, if sure. you're doing it consciously and you're really trying to make a difference. That's right, unless that becomes your comfort zone, right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but see, the people that are able to apply and get into Hitotsubashi University and, and, and the young people that are able to be accepted to the Shibusawa Scholar is the cream of the crop, basically, right. in the Japanese society. Um, what, what's your observation about, in general, the Japanese youth? Um, so <laughs> I think Japanese youth is great. And, um, and my students, if you look at the raw material, they're very well educated. In, in some ways. So, you know, and we know, you know, they're not good at debate. They're not good at speaking up with their opinion of things, but they're, you know, highly tr well-trained in mm. math in writing um, and reading in, in Japanese, their English education remains 
horrible um, and it's an embarrassment. But but the raw material is great and they're they're nice, they're thoughtful. Um, I, I like them a lot. And I, I always feel like we're um we're just not doing enough for them because because they're they're terrific. And you know, and, and it's one of the reasons I tell them, you know, jump out of your comfort zone, go out, you know, I said you, you guys to a large extent, you have to educate yourselves. And um, and you should be seizing those those opportunities to educate yourselves and, and train yourselves. But um, yeah, I mean it's too bad. I think I think Japanese, <laughs> yeah, Japanese young people are miseducated, and I, I think we're mis miseducated. That's yes. an interesting concept. Yes, yes. <laughs> I think we're, we're we're to blame to a large extent. Although it's also very interesting though to see I've seen eight years of Japanese high school trained um, students come in, and every year they get better. And so I have a exactly. sense that that high school education again we're talking about the super elite that high school education is is getting better and 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 better mm -hmm. but but still i mean our the education system here is just is 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 not i mean it's you know it's great in teaching the basics but it's not where it where it can, 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 can we get into that concept about miseducation <laughs> that's, that's like a good practice i should say <laughs> <laughs> so they're educated but not ready for the world is that, is that sort of the concept yeah, so the concept is so um <laughs> the concept is that that my my Japanese are so good. I again, okay, I'm stereotyping, but um in many Japanese institutions and companies are like this too. They're they're very good at the concept of kaizen, which is constant improvement. Um so you sort of it, and and this is why Toyota is so great because Toyota is like you know, um fixated on constantly improving. So you find something that's not great and you improve it. Um, there's something called the PDCA cycle, which is, you know, you plan, you do, you check, you act, and Japanese are obsessed with PDCA. So the problem is we PDCA so much that we've developed the perfect system of education to train Showa-era salarymen. So we train, we've finally done so much um, improvement that we, we've trained the perfect male salaried worker for a Japanese bank in 1985. So show up show period for our audiences from the period of 1925 to 1987 or eight, right? So, is that right? I don't remember, but yeah, it's like, but... But it's the 80s. So when I say show, I basically mean right. the 80s. So we're training, we're training people for that. I, I, I'm exaggerating, of course. But, um, but you know, we just don't have the, the skills. And, and um, you know, our students, for example, they're great at math. They come out of high schools where they're, they're trained in math. And then they don't use it. And, you know, so Japan has, has a shortage of IT-skilled engineers and and of my students my you know, I have students who have incredibly high levels of math and the students who go out and I, I I like take Coursera courses um do internships and the students who take the initiative because they have this great background do do really well but we're just not challenging them and giving the you know you stick you stick these brilliant um young people into lectures of 500 people on some whatever and it's just it's a waste of their their time and I'm, I'm very public but I just think we waste our students time you know mm -hmm. they, they do these club activities where they learn hierarchy they learn it's it's horrible I'm uh, we don't have time to rant it's horrible to watch these kids when they're in their hierarchies because uh, you know, foreign um, people are our, our, our listeners abroad might not believe this but like for a Japanese university student you have to use polite language to a student a year above you and students are stuck in these clubs or circles where they learn this useless hierarchy. And it, it makes me completely insane. So I think we're mal or miseducating um, some of the most brilliant, talented, <laughs> nice, basically educated students in the world. And it, it just constantly makes me crazy. See. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 I, I like that rant. Thank you. Um, in your unique positioning, uh, that is a question I want to ask, <clears throat> is what do people outside of Japan most misunderstand about Japan? And what do Japan Japanese ourselves misunderstand about ourselves? So one of the misunderstandings 
I get that, um, and I never know how to deal with it because I, I just, it's like, it's just a long conversation is that um, people are, people will be like, oh, you work in Japan, you're a professor, you're on boards. Isn't this unusual? You're a woman. We know that Japanese treat women really badly and you must be discriminated against, blah, blah, blah. And, and um, I guess, I don't know if it's, I guess gender issues are very complicated in Japan. And I think people have a very kind of one dimensional um, view of them. And also gender issues are getting better and better, although the situation for women is, is, is still bad. But I don't, you know, I'm a foreign woman, so I'm in a very, very different position. But <laughs> I want people, I mean, treat, every day I'm treated with unbelievable kindness, respect, um, and and it's it's very it's it's not it's a pretty nice place to be a woman these days and and um so yeah so i i, I the the image that people i mean i think people have an image of of you know oh the women board members are they you know asked to serve tea and so, <laughs> no and so 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 the gender issues are 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 more comp you know, things loads and loads of challenge in Japan, but I, I do want people to know that, you know, companies that I work with take these issues very, very seriously and mm. um, treat me with, mm. with respect and, and treat a lot of other women employees with, with mm. respect. That's and a very important point. Yeah. It's, how, about, it's, how about the other way around? What, Japan, what, the, what do Japanese oh. misunderstand about themselves when you look from Japan from the outside? So Japanese think they're a country, there are people with no, with no diversity. And um, and it's like oh we're we're we we Japanese are so homogeneous and we think the same way. But if you look at at the history of Japan and the the, the geography of Japan, it's like it's like guys this is this is not true because um Japan has some very interesting features. People are like Japan is an island nation blah blah blah, but Japan is 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 a is a, a country that stretches from the south to the north, and so you have extreme variation in climate in geography and because of that in the the kind of food you grow and the products you make and your lifestyle and so just the, the archipelago of japan is extremely diverse and and you travel through japan and and um you know the dial there's still dialects from from north to south and customs and it's very very different and you also look historically so japan you know during the shogun the tokugawa shogun it, it shut its doors um, but basically, if you look historically, Japan has had quite a lot of interchange with with other countries. And, um, you know, much of what's great about Japan is is the product of um, kind of this very the switching between sort of diversity and interaction and closing off a bit and then more interaction. So so I think um, I just want to slap people around when they're like, no, 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 you guys are not homogeneous. <laughs> and if you look at, um, you know, the great times in, in, in Japanese history where things have really happened, for example, in the Meiji period, it was in, in the Meiji Restoration, it was a time where there was so much diver internal diversity in Japan, um, where you have the, the um, you know, Satsuma and Tosa Han, so the the the, um, right, right, the, right. the, the, the people <clears throat> from the south and from these coming mm -hmm. in. So mm -hmm. I, for me, Japan is just a great example of diversity, and it it it, it pains me. And and just in terms of personality of people, you know, you go into these rooms with the black-headed salaryman <laughs> who love to dress alike, but you talk to these guys and that everybody's really, really different and people have amazingly different experiences. So I, so I guess I'd like to Japan to, to value and, and, and prize and bring out its, its natural diversity. Mm. No one believes me when I say it, but I, I believe that. Mm. That's another very important point. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, and so as we are coming to the close to our conversation, um, I know you have a passion for kimono these days. Mm, yeah. I see your I see your pictures up on up, up on the uh, social media <laughs> wearing kimonos. Yes. Um, what what turns you on to kimonos and what 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 is it that really turns you on about kimonos? Oh, everything. It's just this black black another black hole in my life. So, I love kimonos because they are um, I've always loved textiles. And um growing up I like to sew, I like to knit and kimonos are kind of the ultimate textiles because there's so many they're um silk they're cotton they're linen they're different weaving styles different dyeing styles and for people who love textiles it's 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 amazing but um but for me i mean it's just everything 
about them um, that they and I, I think kimonos are something that non-Japanese really misunderstand as 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 well. But to give one example, I mean kimonos are the ultimate sustainable clothing product. So really? they're you know they're they're made from silkworms. Um, and you have to feed the silkworms mulberry, and then you sort of, you know, make make the silk. A lot of the kimonos I have are are are, um, are dyed with veg natural vegetable dyes, and so they're from the earth. Um, you know, a lot of them are are hand woven, um, and then you keep them forever. So it's not like fast fashion. Mm. And you um you 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 buy these beautiful products that are very much from the <laughs> land, and um, you know, use of our resources. You you wear them forever. Um, you you're supposed to use them for three generations to give them to your daughter and your granddaughter. And then if and when they're worn out, you make cushions out of them or um, make a wallet out of them or something. And so in many ways, it's the ultimate sustainable product, which I which I I love and I love the Japanese sensibility around around that. So so that's one very wonderful thing about 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 kimonos for me what what, what, what occasions do you i mean it's, you know it's not normal that <clears throat> japanese women wear kimonos and walk down the street for shopping right so what on what occasions do you tend to you wear your kimonos well so in theory um there's no reason why you can't wear a kimono um for an for an occasion and to, to shop in and actually the other cool thing about kimonos is um that you know i mean kimonos are our dress or are, are those sort of the, what japanese women wore all the time um up until mm, what the, the 40s up in up until um the the um it was like normal clothes and so the other cool thing about kimonos is there there are kimonos for every occasion and there are kimonos of course for the formal occasions but I was I was going to wear my shopping my at home kimono, but I I didn't have time to put it on. Um, but yeah, you know, there there are kimonos that you wear for, and I I wear kimonos to go shopping. I wear kimonos really to go. Oh yeah, wow. to go out with with um for for dinner. I wear kimonos for my birthday party. I wear kimonos for company occasions. But it takes and, but it takes a long time to put on a kimono, right? Well, so that's the problem when you're not used to it. So if you've grown up putting it on, it's it's fast. And um apparently um. Someone who works at the kimono store I go to says that that um that she can put it on in ten to twenty minutes. Um, but for me it takes much longer than that. So I'm trying to get my my speed, and and that it, it takes a long time because it's all tied together. Yeah. And um yeah and that's but but I'd love to be able to wear a kimono every day if I had the time to. I see. So when I go shopping, I spend ten twenty seconds putting on my sweats and <laughs> so. But it's not like that. It's a little see, bit that's more. The nice, it's the other nice thing about kimono, kimonos is, is um, yeah. So we're so and so now I'm kind of wearing my clothes from from Uniqlo, which I like head to toe Uniqlo, which I which I love. But um, but we're used to sort of throwing on clothes. But with with kimonos, you have you have to be careful, right? You have to think about who am I who am I going to be with? What's the event? What's the season? Um, how do I want to look? You have to be careful about how you look, which I kind of like, and I, maybe that's something I like about Japan, or at least the old Japan, is mm. kind of this sense of um, its manners, it's how you interact, it's all the kind of a superficial box around your interactions. But it's kind of it's kind of nice to have that, and it's it's kind of nice to 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 pay that kind of attention to to things. So maybe that's another reason I, I love kimonos is it's because they require hard work and they require attention and um, it's, it's kind of mindfulness right which is so uh, popular but, interesting. Um, interesting, but I, yeah. I, I like it it's kind of it's just a, a very very different way to interact with the people uh, so so like yeah it's like it, almost like meditation it's not it's not on demand but but in a sense you have to be purpose purposeful in terms of your actions and yeah, it's not like you can throw, you know, this morning I cut, you know, it's not like you can pick up stuff from the closet floor and throw things on. I mean, yeah, you could, but, but I do like, the, I mean, it's like tea ceremony, right? And, and so much of Japanese culture is, is, is this very sort of purposeful, how am I placing myself in relationship to the world and the seasons and the, the people around me? And I guess for me as a non-Japanese too, it's kind of fun to, to try it on. In other words, just, I mean, you know, talk about a way to delve into Japanese culture. It's not just, you know, so there's so many say, rental kimono stores where you can sort of put on bright colored kimonos, which is like not, I mean, not, not what I do. Mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of, 
immersing myself into this aspect of of, of Japanese culture, which is very, very interesting. Mm. Yeah, you know. it is interesting. So it's out of your comfort zone to to experience some tradition that that you haven't experienced before. So yeah. exactly, yeah, it's completely out of my comfort zone, and yeah, and it's a little scary to walk down the street. Um, in a kimono but boy talk about a way to bond with um senior japanese it's my business tool because you know and the other thing is so i'm i i say whatever i want during board meetings and i you know i'm not i don't try to be polite i i really try to um play my role as a corporate director but when i show up afterwards wearing a perfect japanese kimono that's perfect for the occasion and that's worn well people are like ooh. Um, it gives me credibility and something to, to talk about and, and, and shows that I, I care. Yeah, interesting. That's very, very, that's very interesting. Oh, I need to ask one more question. Sure, because, I have plenty of time. Because um, this is the last closing question I want to ask you because, uh, and, you know, on your social media, there's another word that always comes up almost as much as kimonos. This is concept of ojisan. Ojisan. <laughs> ojisan. O J I S A N. Ojisan. It's not ojisan, which is like grandfather. Yes. But ojisan, which is I would. How how did you describe what ojisan is? I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, so translate it's it's uncle, right? Um, but it's also kind of um, a man who's older, who's sort of not who's your parents' age, right? Um, and 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 so in in Japanese, like in the past at least, so if you lived in a village, you'd call the older men um, ojisan, right? Unless they're very old, then you call them ojisan or, or grandpa. Um, but how did I get into the ojisan? Oh, I guess I figured, you know, there there are different ways if you're if you're a minority like I am. Um, and 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 in a in a country in a society that's kind of welcoming you, but not but kind of not necessarily. I mean, you can look at people around you as enemies, and basically, you know, the men are oppressing me, or this person said this and isn't this horrible. Or you can kind of choose to look at them like you know uncles and in, in your village. Um, <laughs> we all know that uncles can be annoying at at times. They can say certain times things, but they're also kind of cute and nice. And um, so, so I don't know. I started just kind of seeing them as the, you know they're the oji sons, and um, the, you know you kind of laugh at them or you might criticize them. And you know, I, I you know I'm, all, I'm always criticizing the oji sons for 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 doing um for admitting women. But, for, but there's a sense of affection, I think. I guess. But there's a sense of affection, and, and I you know I, I really do feel affection for all the guys that I I, I work with, and um, not all of them, but. <laughs> we won't name names obviously but <laughs> and i also feel that you know and i do criticize them and i have a lot and, and but rather than saying you know oh you know it's horrible and it's oppressive that there are only men um who are speaking at this conference you know rather than kind of taking that stance as much come on ozisans get a grip um you know you need to invite someone it just feels it feels it feels like i can i can say what i want but in a gentler way and 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 without criticizing um the 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 essence of these people because you know you look at and i guess that's something that annoys me as well about you know people looking at at japan and sort of criticizing um you know what you know people say you know these senior japanese guys can you know are are known for saying stupid things like mr mori in the olympics and um you know and 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 he deserves a lot of criticism but 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 I think you also have to look at this generation of mostly men, but not who 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 built an amazing co- country, who built a great economy. You know these guys at companies who spent their whole lives doing some really impressive things. So so I guess my use of ojisans kind of acknowledges that <laughs> um, I can get frustrated, but I still I, I still really kind of value and love love these guys. <laughs> I don't want to kill them. One last parting comment then to the Ojisans. I'm not sure if many Ojisans will be listening to this podcast, but your message to the Ojisans of Japan. Um, yeah, so my message to the Ojisans of Japan is jump out of your comfort zone. And um yeah, and 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 just you know, just just see the see the world, right? (laughs) See the world, go backpacking. Um is 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 one but i think one great way for oji sons to jump out of their comfort zone is to meet 
younger people, and this is something I really, I try to do this with my Sibusawa Scholar Program, I want to do it more and more, is bring these older guys in contact with my younger students and really have that kind of, of, of dialogue. And it's interesting to see both sides can be very closed-minded. So the older ones like, oh, these young people don't know anything. Um, the younger ones can be like, oh, these old guys don't know anything. But I think it's it's a real potential source of, of energy. So I'd say jump out of your comfort zone, hang out with people who are different from you, especially younger people. Yeah, you might, might have spark a new chemical, you know, chemical reaction, right? Yeah. New chemistry, so. Yeah. I mean, I just think it's 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 a perfect combination, and um, for you know experience and um, and you any anywhere. But I I think it's really important for for Japan to see that. I think one of the the really big issues in Japan today, people are always talking gender and diversity, but for me, I think it's the gap between ages, and it's the inability right. for ages to really interact. And and um, you know, if I was looking for a chemical reaction that would change Japan, it would be that one. Wow, excellent. Well, this has been really a blast. Thank you. It's been it's really been really really <laughs> interesting to fired from my job and everything. That's right. I, I, no, no. Um no. So, so thank you very much Chris for joining me today for this wonderful uh uh conversation with you. Um My pleasure, Ken. It's always yeah. really great to to chat with you. Thank you for joining Made with Japan. If you enjoyed this podcast, may I ask two favors from you? One, please tell your friends. Two, please subscribe to Made with Japan wherever you find your podcast. Thank you so much. Arigatou gozaimashita. Till the next time, have a good day or good evening, wherever you are. <laughs>